Put that coffee down. Coffee's for closers only. <laughs> yes, yes, yo! Uh, uh, Good news, bad news. One, two, three. Market volatility trying to mess with me. Companies keep hiring, but actually, that's another reason the Fed's acting hawkishly, cautiously. Investors keep buying nervously, hoping for a pivot or at least some courtesy. But when the dollar's the only strong currency, there's some urgency in these divergencies. Risky assets full of uncertainties amid inflationary insurgencies. OPEC's cut in supply? That's an absurdity. With oil prices this high? You kidding me? Producer prices spiking in Germany. Russia threatening World War III. Everywhere we look, so hard to see. Hard to invest, no visibility. It's times like this, we need perspective. Gotta look long term. Be more objective. Let the past be the past. The future will address as we ride in this together on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. We're in another one of those good news equals bad news moments in the markets and the economy when the good news in the labor market is bad news for equity investors. After U.S. equity markets rallied more than 5% to start the week and the month of October last Monday and Tuesday, investors backed away from buying midweek as more tough talk from the Fed dampened hopes of a pivot on interest rates. Friday's jobs report for the month of September all but confirmed those dash hopes as U.S. employers added 263,000 jobs to their payrolls and the unemployment rate ticked down to 3.5%. Wage growth ticks slightly higher and has risen 5% on an annual basis. The Federal Reserve wants to cool wage inflation along with every other inflation that remains sticky high. So, the thinking goes, the Fed will stay the course and raise the Fed funds rate a couple more times at its next two meetings this year. We don't have to guess or hope it changes its mind. Various Fed presidents were out on the speaking circuit last week, all but promising a 75 basis point hike followed by a 50 basis point hike in December. No pivot there. As soon as investors wrapped their minds around that Friday morning, they sold and they sold hard, wiping $930 billion in market cap off the stock market in a single day. Still, through it all, U.S. equity markets actually ended the week higher, the first positive week for stocks in seven. It may not have felt that way, but the numbers don't lie. The Dow rose 2% for the week, while the S&P 500 added 1.5%, and the Nasdaq posted a 0.7% gain. Volatility, which had been at a simmer through the sell-off in September, has been boiling over in the past couple of weeks. The S&P 500 has moved at least 1% in 11 of the past 14 trading days, the most volatile 14-day surge since April of 2020, according to Dow Jones market data, which leads us to our big three for the week. Number one, what's the fair value for the S&P 500? First of all, what is fair value anyway? Fair value basically is the sale price agreed upon by a willing buyer and a willing seller. The fair value of a stock, ETF, or index is determined by market participants who are looking at the price of a security compared to its future earnings. That's the forward price to earnings ratio that is used to value a company's share price or the price of an index like the S&P 500. Currently, fair value for the S&P 500 is around 14 times forward earnings per share, which translates to a price for the index of around 3300 The S&P 500 closed the week just above 3600 actually trading slightly higher than what would be considered fair value. The question big investors are asking is whether that is still too optimistic given what they believe is likely to happen with interest rates. Earnings season starts this week, and we've already heard some bad news out of market bellwethers like FedEx, Apple, and NVIDIA. If earnings come in worse than expected and companies start cutting their own forecasts for the rest of the year, then that forward P.E. ratio is coming down and fair value is coming down with it. As market participants, we need to remember this piece of wisdom from our pal Jurian Timmer at Fidelity Investments. Price usually bottoms well before earnings, and so do price-to-earnings ratios. Translation, stocks may even... 
Translation, stocks may sell off even harder and remain oversold before earnings turn around. It could be a long winter unless the Fed eases up before earnings bottom. Number two, let's dig a little deeper into earnings estimates since that will be a dominant theme in the coming weeks. Analysts are forecasting 2.4% earnings growth in the third quarter for S&P 500 companies. That's according to FactSet. The few companies in the S&P 500 that have already pre-released their results have reported earnings that are an aggregate only 0.4% higher than a year earlier. That's pretty weak. Most of the companies have seen their share prices fall in the days surrounding those reports, so the bad news is not being taken well at all. Leading up to the end of the third quarter, analysts have trimmed their forecast for S&P 500 third quarter earnings by 6.8%. That's the largest cut to estimates during a reporting period since the second quarter of 2020, according to FactSet. They also have dialed back their projections for the fourth quarter and the full year 2023. Real talk, Analysts are always doing this one way or the other. They're trying to get a handle on company sales, profits, and margins from quarter to quarter, and they set a price target for the stocks they cover. They've been cutting aggressively as fears of a recession and a pullback in spending keep growing. The question is, are they pessimistic enough? How about you? Are the stocks in your portfolio overpriced or underpriced given the environment we're in today? We know the path of interest rates. We know that most CEOs think a recession is inevitable. If you still have a lot of overpriced stocks in your portfolio, consider whether they still belong there or not. If you have some underpriced stocks that have been oversold, consider adding more to discount. Dollar cost averaging is rarely a bad idea at times like these. Number three, hiring and consumer spending have been surprisingly resilient all year despite persistently high inflation. We know consumer spending in the U.S. inched up in August, even though inflation was still stuck above 8%. Wages have grown at a 5% annual rate, which is not keeping up with inflation. So where is all that spending power coming from, especially with the stock market in a tailspin? Turns out, we're saving less, a lot less. The U.S. personal savings rate is at its lowest level since 2008. We're also borrowing more as consumer credit is increasing at the fastest pace since 2011. That combination heading into a potential recession is not the recipe for success, especially with interest rates on the rise. As the Federal Reserve raises the federal funds rate, that pushes up the prime rate from banks, which pushes up APRs on credit cards. The average APR for a credit card is above 18.5%. Consumer spending, my friends, is 70% of US GDP. If consumers pull back, watch out. Let's get set up for the week ahead. And as we just discussed, earnings season is upon us. The nation's biggest banks lead the charge with results coming from companies including J.P. Morgan Chase, Morgan Stanley, BlackRock, and Citigroup. Banks and other financial firms tend to benefit from rising interest rates as higher rates yield higher interest income, which grow their net interest margins. But a slowdown in investment banking activity, trading, and lower demand for mortgages and other consumer loans due to those rising rates could counter those benefits. Financial stocks as a sector are down around 18% year-to-date compared to a 24% drop in the S&P 500. Outside financials will be keeping a close eye and ear on results from PepsiCo, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, the world's biggest chip maker, Delta Airlines, and United Health, also scheduled to release results, among others. Tune in for what those companies are saying about inflation, the impact of rising rates, the prospects for a global recession, the challenges of an ultra-strong dollar, and consumer demand. Also, pay attention to any cuts in forward guidance. If companies are taking down their own projections for the fourth quarter in the first half of 2023, that could prompt more sell-offs across the stock market. Is the bad news priced into the stock market completely? We talked about that last week. 
It may not be. We'll also get key reports on inflation for the month of September with the release of the Consumer Price Index and the Producer Price Index. Producer price inflation has slowed in recent months, decelerating to an 8.7% annual rate in August, down from a 40-year high of 11.7% back in March. But it's still pretty high, and that's putting pressure on margins. Consumer prices came in at 8.3% in August, and economists predict a slight drop for September to around 8.1%. Core prices, which strip out food and energy prices, likely jumped in September due to rising costs for goods and services. How's all this impacting consumers? As we said earlier, consumers continue to spend through the storm, as spending climbed higher again last month. But our confidence is shaken, Cecilia. It remains at a 14-year low. We'll get a new reading on that on Friday, as well as a report on U.S. retail sales. This could also be a big week for cryptocurrencies, as regulatory changes may be on the horizon. The G20's Financial Stability Board is expected to unveil plans to regulate the crypto and DeFi decentralized finance industries at the coming G20 meeting in Washington on Wednesday and Thursday. Last week, the U.S. Financial Stability Oversight Council called for greater oversight of cryptocurrency markets, particularly those more volatile stablecoins. And the SEC won a $1.26 million settlement from Kim Kardashian for not disclosing how she was paid for posting about Ethereum Max to her 331 million Instagram followers. It's getting serious out there in crypto regulatory land. You may have heard the phrase stakeholder capitalism over the past few years. It's become a popular catchphrase among CEOs, including Larry Fink and Jamie Dimon. It's been embraced by business groups like the Business Roundtable, and it's been used to create thousands of financial products for investors of all sizes. Stakeholder capitalism refers, or at least used to refer, to the idea that companies should serve not just their shareholders, but also other societal interests, which include suppliers, consumers, their employees, and the planet overall. But there's also been a growing backlash against the term and what it represents. One of the most outspoken critics on stakeholder capitalism and its cousin ESG, environmental, societal, and governance concerns, is Vivek Ramaswamy. He's the founder and executive chairman of Strive Asset Management and also the author of Woke Inc., a 2021 book, and the forthcoming book, Nation of Victims, Identity Politics, The Death of Merit, and The Path Back to Excellence. And he's our special guest this week on the Investopedia Express. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, glad to be here. And I'm, I'm happy to report that actually Nation of Victims is now officially out. So uh, that is the sequel to Woking. And so anyway, thank you for having me. It's actually just came off the book launch. I've had the pleasure of reading an early edition of it. So thanks for sending it. And folks, we'll link to those books in the show notes. So you're certainly not the only person who takes issue with stakeholder capitalism and its cousins, but you chose to write a book about it, now a sequel, and become very public with your criticism. You are a successful CEO. You're a big philanthropist. You've done very well, Vivek, by most measures. Why devote your energy to this subject? Why are you so passionate about it? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I started on this journey in early 2020 when I wrote my first editorial in the Wall Street Journal, the first of many that followed. So this is about you know a little over two and a half years ago at this point. And I felt like there was something incomplete in the debate where there was a legitimate viewpoint that companies ought to be responsible for more than just making products and services for profit. And, you know, Milton Friedman had always said the social purpose of a corporation is to pursue profit. And that's what makes companies more effective is if they're focused exclusively on making widgets. But to me, it felt like there was something incomplete about that defense of the classical shareholder model. And so, you know, Milton Friedman's long dead and gone, and I felt some sense of obligation to pick up where he left off to get to the other half of the story that he never touched. And the other half of the story that he never touched was that this wasn't just about defending the integrity of capitalism. It was equally about defending the integrity of democracy. And that's actually what bothered me the most. And so 
you know, this has since entered the public discourse. But when I first started writing about this in early 2020, this was a head turner of a view. No one was thinking about it this way. It's why I felt compelled to sort of make the contribution to the dialogue to say that, you know what, the problem with stakeholder capitalism isn't just that it distracts companies from being less profitable. It is that it signals to citizens that your voice on political questions doesn't matter. What it says is instead we settle our most important political and normative differences through the corporate boardroom, through the use of economic force, through the use of economic power, where everyone's voice and vote is adjusted upward or downward by the number of dollars they control in the marketplace. And to me, that, that's not the American vision. For better or worse, the American way departed from the old world European model, which said that, you know what? In the old world European model, church leaders and business leaders get together and decide what's right for the rest of society at large. No, that is not the American way. The American way is for better or for worse. We, the people, as co-equal citizens, settle the answers to our most important political questions, be that how we fight climate change or how you address historical racial injustice. Every person's voice and vote ought to count equally. And I grew concerned that actually this trend of stakeholder capitalism was sucking the lifeblood, the air, out of what it meant to be a citizen in a democracy. And so, you know, I don't know what made you passionate, what made me so passionate about it. I don't know. It just seems like an issue that I care about. Turns out I care about democracy. And that's what sent me on the journey that I've been on for the last couple of years. Well, if you read Woke Inc. like I read it, you understand where a lot of that comes from. Your family comes from India. You learned a lot through traveling there with your family over time. But you've also come to America. You've grown up in America, in Ohio, of all places, and done very well there. But you write in Woke Inc., and I thought this was pretty powerful. There's a new invisible force at work in the highest ranks of corporate America, one far more nefarious. It's the defining scam of our time, one that robs you of not only your money, but your voice and your identity. You spoke to that a little bit earlier, but what brings you to that overall conclusion? Because I think a lot of folks might say, I'm free to believe what I want, even though I know that the places I spend my money believe a certain thing and want us to believe a certain thing. But why do you, what brings you to the conclusion that made you write that? I think a lot of citizens, I mean, take where I live in central Ohio today, 50 mile radius of where I live. It's a pretty good cross section of the country, actually. It's one of the reasons I love living in Ohio, as opposed to, you know, the years that I spent in Manhattan, which as much as I enjoyed it, was a bit of an echo chamber. You know, I think that if you take that cross section of, of people across the country or across 50 miles of where I live, there's a sense that something's amiss. The sense that something is amiss is that my voice no longer matters. My voice is no longer relevant. The world that I travel in as my country feels like I'm traveling in a foreign land. It's foreign because my voice is irrelevant to shaping the norms that govern the place where I live. And where does that come from? I think it comes from a sense of a sense of fear, a sense of fear created, let's say you're working at a company. The idea that expressing your viewpoint freely may be used as a basis for terminating your job or for being denied a promotion. I think that that sense of the everyday citizen's voice mattering in a body politic, that is what we lose when we hand over the power to not just determine what products rise to the top. And by the way, I'm a big believer in American capitalism. I don't think that everyone has an equal say in determining whether it's this phone in my hand or a different phone in someone else's hand that rises to the top of the products that get sold at a store. That's a $1, one vote system, as it should be. But the right way to address climate change, the right way to address historical injustice, racial or gender driven injustice, these are fundamental political questions where Larry Fink's voice as the CEO of BlackRock might matter on which stocks rise to the top and which ones don't. But it ought not matter with respect to which ideas rise to the top of the marketplace of ideas in a democratic society. And so 
you know, I think that it's this idea, it's a heist. I think it's the heist of our time where when managing other people's money, the thing you stole, and I use that word intentionally, the things that you stole as an ESG promoting asset manager was also their voice and their vote that they never intended to give to you. I think it's the largest scale form of, I don't say this lightly, largest scale form of financial fraud, at least the largest scale financial breach, fiduciary breach of duty in the 21st century. It was hiding in plain sight. No one stepped up to the plate to address it. And you know, I thought the least I could do was to share my perspectives on the pages of the Wall Street Journal in the form of a book, in the form of writing and speaking about it. When I didn't see much progress being made uh, in terms of institutions changing their behavior in response to that, you know, a little bit, but not a lot. I said, look, we got to actually just do this through the market, which is what led me more recently than to found Strive. Well, I want to get into Strive in a few minutes, but I also want to come back to this notion of the corporations and corporate CEOs stepping into what may have sent, seemed like a moral vacuum. A lot of this stuff has been bubbling up over the past few years. There was the pandemic, there was racial issues, racial injustices, there was George Floyd, a number of other incidents like that across the country that brought a lot of this to the surface and brought a lot of companies off the sidelines and their CEOs into the mainstream where maybe they felt like there was an absence of leadership, whether that was political or through communities or through family, that they felt like they had to speak up. Am I hearing you saying that it wasn't about their conscience, it was about what was best for their company and what they wanted the people who follow their companies and shop with them to believe? Why do you think that this happened? Yeah, so, so I think that there's no one answer to overgeneralize. And that's what it takes a book to explain. I think there are some cases in which it was in the best financial interests of the company to signal something that they or their executives absolutely did not believe. So that's the case of what I sometimes jokingly call blowing woke smoke to be able to deflect accountability from the issues you'd rather not be addressing, right? If you're Coca-Cola, you'd rather teach your employees how to be less white, their words, not mine, or to pontificate about a voting law in Georgia than you would to talk about your own product's impact on the nationwide epidemic of diabetes and obesity, by the way, including in the Black community that you profess to care so much about. So, so in some cases, it's a deflection move. I think in other cases, it is actually not in the financial best interests of a company but they're forced to adopt that behavior by large asset managers like BlackRock and Vanguard because it's in their financial best interests to be able to aggregate assets from pension funds like New York and California to agree to then foist those policies onto companies, even if they're not in the best interest of the companies themselves. So in some cases, it's imposed by financial institutions onto companies when it serves the financial institution, even when it doesn't actually serve the company. And then in other cases, I think you have executives who say that, you know what? You only live once and I'm going to impose my views on everybody else. And these are my views and I authentically hold them, even if it is going to hurt the company's interest. And that's a principal agent problem of a different kind. So, you know, I think that there's no one size fits all answer. It's a complicated phenomenon. Different cases have different forces at work. But at the end of the day, you know, all of them, I think, represent a threat to democracy because it involves a, an empowered market actor making a political or social judgment, but without the backstop of political accountability on which our system is built. You kind of experienced maybe the flip side of this as the CEO of your biotech company when a lot of these racial incidents were coming up over the past few years, and you didn't necessarily address it head on, although you addressed it, you got some backlash from that, from your staffers, from your employees. Talk about that experience. How did that shape your thinking around this? It's a good question. I mean, it was a big part of the experience I talk about in the book. You know, look, I, I think that there's the first thing that I 
you know, reflect on as a CEO and as a leader is that a lot of times when your younger employees are clamoring for you to make a statement or adopt a social or public position, it comes from, in many cases, in this case, an earnest place, a good place, different than the cynical motivations of the Black Rocks of the world that are imposing this in a top-down manner. You know, oftentimes, young people, it comes from a good place, wanting to do their part to make the world better. And I think that that's important to acknowledge in the response so we don't hammer out the good impulse underlying it, even though it may be misguided in the end. And I think the job of leaders is to fill what I see as a generational hunger for purpose and meaning and identity, a black hole of purpose in, in I think the heart of a generation, millennials and Gen Z included, that are hungry for a purpose, hungry for a cause, but used to have that cause or purpose filled by things like faith or patriotism or hard work. As those things have receded in modern life, you know, that I think creates a situation where they start to fill that void by looking to fill it with fast food instead, you know, going to Ben and Jerry's and ordering a cup of ice cream with some social justice sprinkles on top. They think that fills their moral hunger, but you don't satisfy a moral hunger with fast food. And, you know, what can a CEO do? A CEO is not in a position to revive patriotism or national identity or family. I don't propose that they try, but I think a CEO can fill that void with a strong sense of corporate purpose to actually remind their employees about the importance of the work that they do. Maybe it's being an entertainment company. Maybe it's being a biotech company that makes you know, medicines that save people's lives. Maybe it is through becoming a technology company that makes people more effectively able to live their lives. Whatever it is, there's a presumption in favor of a company that's able to sell a product that people want to pay for because generally people want to pay for something that has value to them. That means that there's likely, not always, but likely a really worthy mission at the heart of that. And I think that sometimes CEOs who feel pressured as I did even at times. I mean, this is a reflection on my own failures as, as a leader in some ways, is that many CEOs, many of us who might find us in our position of responding to calls to fulfill a social purpose that's different from the purpose of the company might mean that we weren't even doing a good enough job of articulating our own companies and institutions purpose. And that could actually fill that millennial Gen Z hunger for cause more effectively than just, you know, waving like a flag in whatever the direction the wind blows on a given day, which is like the equivalent of fast food to satisfy a much deeper hunger. I want to pull another quote from the book. I, I think you're an excellent writer. And some of these things you, you just put in such interesting context, but you write here, the real problem with stakeholder capitalism isn't that it's inefficient. The deeper threat is this. It's the Goldman rule in action. The guys with the gold get to make the rules, not just market rules, but moral rules too. You, Vivek, you were referring to Goldman Sachs, of course, the giant and legendary investment firm where you worked for a few years. Are things like pushing for more diverse workforces, broadening suppliers, protecting the environment, are these things that just bankers with fleece vests want? Or is this something that you think a lot of people want, but shouldn't be pushed from a corporation out into its customers and its shareholders? I um, mean, it was a few months that I worked at Goldman. It was a summer internship. I ended up working at a hedge fund after I graduated you know, for, for a few years thereafter. But it was an edifying few months. And the Goldman rule, as I said, it was the guy who has the gold gets to make the rules. You know, that's not the way a democracy is supposed to work. Do the fleece vested bankers actually want it? No, actually, the funny thing is most of them didn't want it. <laughs> most of them could care less. Most of them want to want their year-end bonus and is going to be able to say or do whatever it takes to get that year-end bonus. But I think that the reality, and by the way, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I don't think that someone needs to apologize for wanting to make money, especially if they're working in the financial services industry, presumably. You went into that because you care about managing and making money. 
So I think that this apologist culture to cover up for that sin when it wasn't a sin at all, but you're trying to cover it up is itself fake and creates a new sin of dishonesty in its wake. So that being said, I think that there are people out there who authentically want with their own money to advance an environmental or a social or a cultural agenda. It's a free country. They ought to be free to do that. But I think what's happened right now is large financial institutions have captured the money of everyday citizens who don't want to advance those agendas and are still using them to advance those agendas. I think BlackRock is, is an epitome of this example of which, you know, California and New York might have said you need to adopt environmental and social standards, modern diversity, equity, inclusion standards and the Paris Climate Accords and net zero pledges by 2050. Great. Do that for clients who demand it. But you can't vote everyone else's shares or advocate on behalf of everyone else to do the same thing. Yet that's actually what's happened. And I think that breeds a sense of mistrust. I think it stifles public discourse, open public discourse and debate about these issues. And I think that that's something that, you know, leaves everyone worse off in the end, whether or not you're a proponent of an environmental or anti-climate change or anti-racist agenda. You don't want to win that debate by force, or at least you shouldn't want to win that debate by force. You should want to win it on the merits of the ideas themselves, because that's what's going to you know, give you lasting victory in a way that matters in a society of co-equal citizens, rather than using economic force to foist your ideas onto people who are never persuaded by them in the first place. I think we need more persuasion. That's what we need in our country. We need more authentic persuasion as a way to win people over rather than the use of, of economic force. Sounds like the title of a new book, potentially. Let's see if you have time for that. But let's talk about ESG. We've been dancing around and talking about it a little bit, but this is a way that the financial industry has basically productized a lot of this. We know that assets under management and ESG-related investments are up to something like $11 trillion and growing every year, every year. But it has become the subject of a lot of criticism, a lot of companies being accused of greenwashing. We know the SEC is looking into it. We have folks like Tariq Fancy, who I had on my other podcast, The Green Investor, talking about what a sham it is. Why do you think that it is such a poisonous part of what's going on in this industry? Yeah, I, mean, I think Tariq is focused on the, the narrow issue of greenwashing which is to say that an ESG fund that claims to do a certain thing may not even be doing that thing. And even if it did do that thing, it's not going to move the needle very much. And that's one set of issues. I'm focused on the converse issue, which is what I call green smuggling, which is actually taking all of the funds that weren't described as ESG funds, but in fact are using ESG-linked voting principles and voting guidelines to advocate for policies that people who invested in those funds didn't actually expect or know they were subsidizing. And it turns out that's even the much bigger scale problem. I think the problem at the root of the ESG movement is it's it's irreducibly vague. It's vague on purpose, right? The definition of what counts as ESG changes on a given day. A couple of years ago, it was being against oil and gas until Russia invades Ukraine, in which case, ah, we're not really against oil and gas anymore because gas prices are higher and we might need to invest in production some more. That's a year-to-year -year change. Investing in weapons manufacturers. Oh, well, that's not ESG. Eh, unless you're actually selling weapons to Ukraine, in which case it might be ESG. Nuclear energy, yeah, systematic exclusion from the Vanguard fund, from the Vanguard ESG funds if you're a nuclear energy producer. But wait a minute, actually, maybe nuclear energy is ESG friendly because it's carbon neutral. The definitions change by the day. It's purposefully vague, but that's not by accident. It's by design because it further empowers the people who get to design and, and define the three-letter acronyms in the first place. Let's talk about 
how you invest. Furthermore, you have a, uh, an asset management firm, Strive Asset Management. I don't want to get too much into what's in there, but how do you direct investors' money? What is sort of the philosophy and the ethos behind Strive? And what is your take on investing to maximize shareholder return? So Strive was formed, I mean, I co-founded the company to fill what I saw as a gap in the marketplace created in the wake of the ESG movement. And what we wanted to offer was not an anti-ESG voice, but a pro-excellence voice, a voice that stands for a different view, a voice to, and a mandate to corporate America to focus exclusively on delivering excellent products and services to their customers and maximize shareholder value that way, rather than focusing on anyone else's social or cultural or political agenda. And you know, as, as simple as that might sound, that's in today's environment, that ends up being a very contrarian message. Leave politics to the politicians and tell companies to focus on products and services for their customers. It's that simple. And that was the mantra of Strive, invest in excellence, advocate not for stakeholder capitalism, but excellence capitalism. And you know what? For the people out there, you asked about this earlier too, right? Are there people out there who want with their own money to advance an environmental agenda or a worthy social agenda or political agenda with their money? It's a free country and they're free to do that. And Strive would probably not be a good home for their capital. And I think that's one of the things that more asset managers need to do. They need to be transparent about the fact that there are certain customers or clients whose interests, you can't be a good fiduciary to everybody, that you can't be a good fiduciary to them either. And so I think that in a, in a society of mutual respect, they deserve a fiduciary who looks after their, their interests if they want to advance an environmental or social agenda. But conversely, if somebody wants to exclusively with their money tell companies to focus on products and services for profit without apologizing for it, maximize shareholder value that way, that's the kind of client for whose business Strive wants to compete. Well, Vivek, you know we are Investopedia, a site built on our terms, on our dictionary. We like to ask our guests for their favorite investing term. I have a feeling I know what your favorite investing term is not, but I would love to know <laughs> what it is. What is that term that just means so much to you, that's so special to you as an investor, as a CEO, as someone who has grown up in this industry? Which term really speaks to your heart? I'd say alpha. Alpha is a term that speaks to me. Because it means doing something distinctive. You're doing something that achieves a unit of extra outperformance as a consequence of ingenuity, generally human ingenuity. Maybe these days it can be algorithmic ingenuity too. But the use of ingenuity to create something that did not otherwise exist, which is outperformance relative to the herd. That, that, that's that's the term that, if you put me on the spot, means something to me. That's a great term. We love that term. Well, it's been really interesting talking to you folks. We are going to link to your social media platforms, to Strive Asset Management, and some of the articles that you've written, and also to your books, because they are fascinating. So good to talk to you. Vivek Ramaswamy, so good to have you on the Investopedia Express. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Good talking to you. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Mahmood, who hit us up on Instagram. Mahmood suggests credit default swaps this week. And we like that term given all the action in the credit default swaps under Credit Suisse last week. According to Investopedia, a credit default swap, or CDS as we call them, is a financial derivative that allows an investor to swap or offset their credit risk with that of another investor. To swap the risk of default, the lender buys a CDS from another investor who agrees to reimburse them if the borrower defaults. Most CDS contracts are maintained via an ongoing premium payment similar to the regular premiums due on an insurance policy. A lender who is worried about a borrower defaulting on a loan often uses a credit default swap to offset or swap that
that risk. It's basically insurance against default. And if you're old enough to remember the great financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, credit default swaps were at the heart of it. They were highly used during that time to reduce the risks of investing in mortgage-backed securities and fixed income products. But when the bottom fell out of the mortgage market, premiums on credit default swaps spiked, prompting defaults and a liquidity crisis for the ages. Cut to last week, and the price of credit default swaps for Credit Suisse jumped dramatically as there were rumblings about the bank's solvency as it undergoes a restructuring. The stock nosedived as the price of those credit default swaps soared, but by the end of the week, those reversed as the company announced that it would be buying back $3.3 billion of its own debt. We haven't seen reader interest in credit default swaps like that in a while, and they don't bring back great memories, but it's an important product to understand and a good term for our investing vocabularies. Great suggestion, Mahmood. We're sending you a pair of Investopedia's finest socks. We're going to let Milton Friedman take us out this week, especially given our conversation with Vivek Ramaswamy. You heard Vivek talking about Friedman and the difference between shareholder and stakeholder value. Friedman was a key proponent of free market capitalism and corporations' responsibility to their shareholders. Well, here is the Nobel laureate economist talking about the moralities of capitalism in a speech from 1978 from the Free to Choose Network. It's true that if you had a concentrated power in the hands of an angel, he might be able to do a lot of good as he viewed it. But one man's good is another man's bad. And the great virtue of a market capitalist society is that by preventing a concentration of power, it prevents people from doing the kind of harm which really concentrated power can do. So that I conclude that capitalism per se is not humane or inhumane. Socialism per se is not humane or inhumane. But capitalism tends to give, the, give free reign, much freer reign, to the more humane values of human beings. It tends to develop a climate which is more favorable to the development, on the one hand, of a higher moral atmosphere of responsibility, and on the other, to greater achievements in every realm of human understanding. Thank you. Whether you side with him or not, Friedman's ideas help build the thinking behind today's capital markets and the capitalism we are experiencing in the 21st century. The battle over the purpose of today's corporations in our society is one of the most important of our time. Thanks for joining us this week on The Express. We'll post the transcript to our conversation with Vivek Ramaswamy and links to his books and articles in the show notes, along with links to the reports we cited on the show. A programming note from us here at Investopedia, we're hosting our second annual Your Money, Your Health virtual conference on October 20th with our partners at Very Well Health and Parents Magazine. We'll be tackling all the most important questions U.S. households are facing as they relate to our money, our health, our health care, insurance, and health care policy today. It's free to all attendees, and we'll post a sign-up link in the show notes as well. I'm really looking forward to that. Let's hold on tight this week, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.